Now, you may have had an opportunity to look in the bulletin and see the passage that I'll be preaching on this morning. And if you haven't, you're going to see it in a second. And you might be thinking to yourself, wait a minute, no passage on the resurrection? Not on the empty tomb? Should we fire this guy already? Easter is about new life. Jesus died. He was buried, and He rose again. It's all about new life. And it just so happens that the next passage in our sermon series, Looking Through the Gospel of John, talks about new life. As I read it, I want you to see if you can pick up the undertones of new life in it. John chapter 12, beginning in verse 20. Now, among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please join me as I pray for us this morning. Oh God, we come to you this morning in your word, and we are looking to hear from you. We want to know that you are speaking to us, that this is really you. But if we're honest, it's hard for us to feel connected to you sometimes, hard to sense that Jesus' words have an impact for us today. And so I pray that you would send your spirit into our hearts so that the words of Jesus here would become the words of life words that bring us new life, that change us, our hearts, our minds, our thoughts, and our deeds. I pray that my words would fall to the floor and only your words remain. I pray this in the mighty name of your Son, Jesus. Amen. We have two fruit trees in our backyard, one right in the center, a navel orange tree, right where all four of our sprinklers can reach it. And off to the side, in the back, by the shed, out of the reach of all of our sprinklers, we have a persimmon tree. And as you can imagine, these trees produce different amounts of fruit just by virtue of where they're at. Two years ago, we had 200 to 250 persimmons off of our tree. We counted. It was amazing. Zero oranges. As a home renter, I was nervous I thought that I had killed this orange tree in the middle of the yard, so I spent a year and a half trying to get the exact regimen of feeding and watering just right. I didn't water the rest of the yard, I only watered the ground around the orange tree where the roots were in order to make sure it was getting all of the water. I got the right fertilizer and I made sure I applied it just at the right time. And I am proud to say that in February we got 50 to 60 oranges off our tree. You should clap. That's a great thing. I'm joking. I'm joking. I'm joking. However, zero persimmons. I have no idea what I'm doing. What do I have to do to get some fruit? What does it take to bear fruit? That's a question that, believe it or not, we all ask about our own lives, even though fruit for you might look different than fruit for me. Maybe the fruit that you're pursuing is a particular degree 
or some accreditation, and you think, what do I have to do to achieve this, to bear fruit? Maybe you're trying to get your retirement account to have a certain balance in it. Maybe you're trying to get a particular grade in a class. Or maybe for you, fruit is uh, having some influence, impacting other people, wondering how you can impact the people in your circles of influence. Maybe it's being a good parent or grandparent or sibling, roommate, boss, employee. Maybe you are asking yourself, am I even valuable? Do I bear any fruit at all? Everyone that comes to Jesus in the gospel accounts is asking a similar question. How can I bear fruit? What does it look like to have a fruitful life? And does this Jesus guy have anything to say, any help to offer me at all? That's the exact question that Jesus answers here. Hold on, Stephen, you might say. I didn't hear that question asked at all, to which I would reply, very astute, good listener. However, The Greeks in this passage are out of place. They are the ones who want to talk to Jesus, but they definitely don't belong here. This interaction is set in the midst of the Jewish festival of Passover, the most important high holy festival in Judaism at this time. Thousands and thousands, hundreds of thousands of Jews have traveled to Jerusalem to celebrate this festival at the temple, which is where Jesus is. The Greeks aren't supposed to be there. However, they have heard about this God of the Jews. There's something special, something powerful, and they have come to see what does He have to say to us? Does He offer us any help? What does it look like for our lives to be impacted by this God? Matthew, Mark, and Luke tell us that a day or two before this interaction, Jesus got to the temple And the outermost court of the temple, called the court of the Gentiles, was full, not of Gentiles, but of money changers and livestock, people trying to sell sacrifices. And Jesus got angry. You may remember, He flipped over the money changer tables. He made a whip out of cords, and He drove all the livestock out. And why? To make room for these Greeks, for the Gentiles. And so, these Greeks who have come to interact with God recognize that Jesus has done something amazing because He wants them there. He wants them to connect with God, so they come to ask Him, what advice do you give? What does it look like for us to have a fruitful life? To which Jesus responds, a fruitful life is one that begins with death. It is future-focused, and it changes your present. Three points for us this morning, starting with the fact that a fruitful life begins with death. Now, to be fair to these Greeks, Jesus doesn't actually answer their question. We don't know if they were able to come and talk to Him or not. Jesus just kind of starts rattling off on His own train of thought, talking about something else, which in the Gospel of John is an indication that Jesus is talking about a bigger point, something more important to Him, almost the Let me answer the question you should have asked. Jesus uses this grain analogy, and then He unpacks it a little bit. That's good preaching. Good illustration, short, sweet, something that you can expand upon later. Jesus says, verse 24, "'Truly, truly, I say to you, 
Unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. You may recall Jesus uses a lot of agricultural metaphors when he speaks, and that's because that's what the people understood. They got exactly what he was talking about. It's almost like if I said to you, unless your business begins in a garage, it will never make a billion dollars. Or, unless you commit to embarrassing yourself making TikTok dance videos, you'll never become an influencer. Jesus goes on to explain, verse 25, whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. All right, this makes sense to us. We understand and recognize that sacrifice is powerful. Sacrifice is honorable and valuable. Someone who sacrifices themselves should be respected and seen as someone who has lived a fruitful life. We just get that as a culture. This past February, I performed my own grandmother's memorial service. And as I was thinking through her life as I knew her, what I wanted to say about her, one of the things that stuck out to me was how well she loved my grandfather, who was not, as we should say, very bubbly of a person. In fact, he was rather cold. He was very, very uh, hard to live with as a grandchild, and I can't imagine what it was like to live with as a spouse. But she loved him really well. He was injured in World War II and couldn't use his left arm, so she did everything for him. Cooked for him, cleaned, took him everywhere that he wanted to go, filed all of the random paperwork and stuff that he hoarded over the years. She sacrificed herself for him and never got anything in return. And when I mentioned this in her memorial service, everyone in my family started nodding their head. All her friends that were there that were able to make it out talked to me afterwards and said, that's exactly how she lived. She sacrificed herself for him. Sacrifice is amazing. It's awe-inspiring. It is powerful. You all have a story that you know just like that. Some of you are currently living stories just like that. And Jesus says, a fruitful life begins with sacrifice. It begins with death. But here's the thing, that grain of wheat that he's talking about that has to go into the earth and die, it's not talking about the disciples or the Greeks that have come to talk to him. He's not talking about you, and he's not talking about me. He is talking about himself. A fruitful life for you begins with death for him. When he says, the time has come for the Son of Man to be glorified, what he means is, it is now time for me to be arrested, crucified, buried, and resurrected. I have to do that. It must be done in order for any fruit to be born at all. New life begins when you receive the death of Jesus for you. It's a gift. He gives it to you freely. He took the punishment that your sins and my sins deserve so that you don't have to. He died in your place. And He rose from the dead so that when you receive His death, you also receive His life, new life, a fruitful life, which He tells us is future-focused. 
A fruitful life is future-focused. Say that five times fast. We see this clearly laid out and explained when Jesus uh, breaks apart His illustration. Verse 25, whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. A fruitful life begins with the death of Jesus, and now it looks forward to eternal life. It's not focused on the here and now, focused on this life. In fact, it requires hating this life. That's a really powerful word. That's strong. Jesus uses this Greek word, meseo, which also has this connotation of detest. Jesus is saying if you detest this life, the things of this world, you will actually keep your life into the next. He uses such strong language here, not because this life is so terrible, but actually for the opposite reason, because it's so easy to love this life. Jesus is talking about the difference between being present-focused and future-focused. If you love the way things are now, if you're absorbed with this life, if you love it, if you seek it, if it takes all of your focus and all of your energy and all of your attention, Jesus says very clearly, you're going to lose it all. But when you begin to not love the way things are now, when you begin to long for better things, for a better life and a better place, and you know the only way to get that, the only way to get there is through Jesus' death. You begin to detest the things of this life in favor of that better life, the one that Jesus gives to us. Now, this is a little confusing, the way that Jesus talks about this, but I understood it better when I looked to something else that He says in the gospel. Matthew chapter 6 verse 31, Jesus tells His disciples, therefore, don't be anxious, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? But seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. That makes much more sense to me. Focus on the future first and see how God takes care of the life here and now. Unfortunately, the more I understood it, the more I felt convicted. <laughs> it's not so much that I love the way things are now. I do. Life is good, and I love a lot of it, as I'm sure you do as well. But the way that Jesus speaks here in Matthew, I find, reminds me that often I am totally, overwhelmingly absorbed in this life. In 1967, Charles Hummel was the president of Barrington College in Rhode Island, and he published a little pamphlet on management and productivity called The Tyranny of the Urgent. And the whole point of his pamphlet was that urgent tasks often take priority over important tasks, things like responding to emails, adjusting your calendar, filling out your paperwork, responding to a voicemail or a text, they often absorb most of our time, and we put things like building team unity, setting and establishing vision, finishing a job before starting another one on the back burner, right? Because urgent things are, well, urgent, they grab our attention. 
They demand our resources and our effort. And all the other really important stuff tends to just get whatever's left over. Have you ever felt at the end of a day that you're exhausted, you've done so much stuff, but you feel like you haven't accomplished anything? This is why. I remember when I heard that phrase, the tyranny of the urgent, for the first time, and I realized that that describes the way that I live my life, not necessarily in management or business or anything like that, but just how I go about living. It's probably more appropriately the tyranny of the present. I know cleaning up after dinner would be loving to my wife and my children, but the game is on now. I want my girls to know that I'm patient and I'm loving when they're having a hard time, but I want them to behave now. I know that it's good to talk to my friends about Jesus, but I don't really want to be embarrassed right now. I know I should give money to those less fortunate and maybe a homeless person on the street corner, but I need this $20 for lunch right now. It's probably good for me to go to bed, but I am loving this show right now. We are so absorbed with the here and the now. We're focused, fixated on it. But the life that Jesus' death and resurrection opens to us lifts our eyes from the here and now to the future, to life as it should be, eternal life, where all relationships are righted, human to human, human to creation, and human to God. That is the life that awaits us in Jesus. That should be our focus. And when it is, when that holds our attention, then our life in this world becomes fruitful. A friend of mine once put it this way, if you take a kid to a candy store and you tell them they can pick out one candy, that decision could last for hours because there's so many options to choose from. But if you're going to the movies and you give a kid an option to get candy before the movies, it's made like this because you know you're going to something greater. And so this decision isn't quite as important as it was when there was nothing else. A fruitful life is future-focused, but don't be fooled because it also changes your present. My final point, future life is future-focused but it changes your present. I think this might be the most powerful and often forgotten part of the Easter message. Jesus' resurrection, it it impacts you today. For me, it always seems to remain in this sense of a security, eternal security. Because Jesus died and rose again, I know that when I die, I will go be with Him, that my eternal home is secure, which is true. That's not wrong, but it can feel empty. I mean, that notion is helpful for my once-a-week existential crisis, but what about the other six days? What does Jesus' resurrection matter about how I handle Monday morning, all the craziness in life going on, all the responsibilities that I have? What about the day-to-day stuff? Often we think that the resurrection of Jesus, His death and resurrection, they have nothing to say about that. So, it's just on us. We've got to figure it out. We've got to make, try and make the best decision we can with the information that we have. Try to harm the fewest amount of people, to do the most good, to avoid the most bad. It's just up to us. But here in this little discourse, Jesus says, 
that the fruitful life that He brings to us changes everything about the way we live today. We've already seen how He shifts our perspective from inward, downward focus to the future and how it changes us, but He takes it one more step practical. Verse 26, He says, "'If anyone serves Me, he must follow Me, and where I am, there will My servant be also. If anyone serves Me, the Father will honor him.'" What does it look like to live out this fruitful life that Jesus gives us? What does it look like to serve Him, to live it out as He gives it to us? He says it's following Him, being with Him. Now, I think we can all admit inviting people to follow you and to be with you as you're on your way to be crucified isn't exactly the way to win people over. But here's the thing. You and I we're already accustomed to death, to real death. Each of us has experienced the the loss of a loved one, family, or friends. And we all experience the effects of death in little ways every day. Dreams that are shattered, hopes that remain unfulfilled, experiences that break our heart. The invitation of Jesus to follow Him isn't so much, come on, let's go die. It is, don't be afraid of things that feel like death, because His resurrection shows us that He brings life from death, that He brings new life out of death, our new life, eternal life, the true one that He has given to us. We don't have to run from it because we know what the end is, which we do. We run. We fear death. We run from it. We obsess over our health. We obsess over protecting ourselves from COVID and other diseases. We obsess over things that feel like death, like losing our freedoms, having no political power. We numb ourselves to anything that feels like death, pain, heartbreak, sorrow, loneliness. We use food alcohol, Netflix, Instagram, we work very hard to stave off the effects of death and any reminder of it. We want to have a life that's comfortable, that works, that doesn't feel like death. The invitation of Jesus to follow Him, to serve Him, it's not just a change of mindset, but it's an active, everyday little by little change that Jesus' death and resurrection brings us into. You can choose a life that is comfortable and a life that works today, or you can choose to know Jesus. Knowing Jesus is better for right now, for today, for the moment, not just for future and for eternity. It's true, but for today. And not just because serving Jesus and following Him brings us honor from the Father, as He says here. It's true, it does. But following Jesus, not being afraid of things that feel like death, is good because in death, that's where the fruit is. As Jesus said, if the grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it bears much fruit. He is the grain of wheat. We are the fruit that He bears what is the purpose of fruit? To release more seeds that go into the ground 
and they die, and they bear more fruit. Last summer, my family took by far and away the best family vacation that we've ever taken. We went down to San Diego, had a great time. Part of the reason that it was the best trip ever was because of the things that Nicole lined up for us to do along the way. But for me, one of the reasons it was the best was because I didn't get my way. When we go on vacation, I'm the worrier. I'm the one that's always concerned about the schedule. Do we have enough time to stop here? Do we have enough gas to get where we're going? I'm the one that's worried about all the events that we've lined up. Well, we didn't book this thing, so we're not going to be able to go to it. I'm always worried about the budget. Well, I don't know if we can eat out another night. We didn't plan for that. I'm not sure that we could get this little extra thing at this shop because we didn't really plan for that. And for whatever reason, on this particular vacation, I killed that person, and I said yes to everything. My daughters affectionately called me vacation dad. They bought me a Hawaiian shirt with big pink flowers on it. And whenever that shirt comes out, they know there's vacation dad. He says yes to everything. We spent more money than we planned. We didn't get to go do all the things that we had wanted to do. We stayed a little bit longer than we wanted. The trip there and back took us a little bit longer than it wanted. And the amount of joy that we experienced because I was vacation dad and normal vacation me was dead was amazing. It was hard. It wasn't what I had thought that I wanted. But the fruit that came out of that death was amazing. A fruitful life begins with the death of Jesus. And the new life that He brings to us in His new life bears fruit. Let's pray. God, we come to You and we are so thankful for the death and resurrection of Jesus, not just because it secures our home for eternity, but because this new life that we see coming out of this empty tomb is ours now today. Access to it. I pray that You would help us believe that this new life can change us, that Jesus can change us. Help us to choose Jesus over a comfortable life, a day that works well, where things are ordered neatly and perfectly. Help us to choose Jesus. We pray this in His mighty and powerful name. Amen.